You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Well, whatever else may be said about Palestine and being Palestinian in this day and age, one can certainly say that it is not a boring experience at this moment in time. And tonight, let's talk a little bit about what's happening in Palestine and some of the things that are swirling around there as just uh, story after story keeps coming out about what's happening in that particular region of the world as it becomes, uh, well, a geostrategic nexus once again, as it always is from time to time as these flare-ups happen. And of course, we're not just talking about the recent Israeli aggression there and uh, what happened with the the bombing of the Gaza Strip, etc., but uh, that is part of it. But we're also talking about political intrigue regarding Qatar and what it's doing in the region and its relationship to Hamas. And uh, we're talking about assassinations and uh, the literal exhuming of Arafat's dead body to take samples to test for poisons and and uh, UN membership bids and all sorts of other craziness that's happening right now in that particular area. So let's cover some of that tonight here on the program. And tonight I want to get straight into it by talking about, well, the recent uh, fallout, uh, and you'll forgive the use of that term, but the, the recent fallout from the, the recent uh, uh, Israeli aggression there in Palestine and unfortunately, it just continues to unfold even even now, even after the uh, the ceasefire has uh, has taken effect. And this goes back to a story that uh, that actually started during the bombing in, in uh, eight on the eighteenth of November two thousand twelve there in Gaza City, where there was a report that came out from RT.com and other sources on that date that uh, the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, had accidentally wiped out an entire Palestinian family due to a technical error that saw that uh, 11 members of that family were killed in a uh, a bomb that, at the time we were being told, went astray. So you can pick this story up from the RT post from the 19th of November. Deadly mistake. IDF wipes out Palestinian family due to technical error. And it says that uh, Israel has killed a family of 11 people this evening and many, many more. Uh, IDF said the source of the error was either a failure to to laser paint the correct target or that one of the munitions in the strike misfired, uh, Haaretz News reported. The Israeli military is investigating the incident. Well, coming across the the news wires today is another piece of that puzzle. In fact, now the IDF is backing off that original inclination of theirs to say that this was an accident. And in fact, they're saying, nope, no accident at all. We intended to kill them, and we did. It's unfortunate that this one particular target that we were going after, uh, it happened to be hiding among civilians, but he was, so we killed them all. And that's now the new official line on the Al-Dalu family massacre that occurred in Gaza City on November 18th. So uh, just uh, horrific scenes continue to pour out from, from Palestine. And of course, Gaza is still under the blockade, the naval blockade that Israel has had it under for years now making sure that uh, the Palestinians can't even get such things as PVC piping for uh, upgrading their sewage systems, because that would be, I guess, harboring terrorists or giving aid and support to terrorists, because anyone who lives in Gaza, I guess, is by definition a terrorist. 
It is a very strange uh, section of the world, and there are a lot of very interesting things going on there, as I say. So we'll get into some some of this tonight, including that strange story about dig- digging up Arafat's body and much more when we come back from this break. Of course, this is Corbett Report Radio. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. And I should also say, as I've just gotten back from Kuala Lumpur, as I'm sure you all know by now, I did have several hundred emails waiting for me when I got back, so uh, you will forgive me if I'm not able to reply to everyone personally. I do try to read what comes in, but I just can't uh, deal with the volume of emails I'm receiving, so unfortunately I can't guarantee a reply to everyone, but still, please keep bringing those, uh, sending those news tips in, and I'll keep taking a look at them as they come in. And on that note, we're going to take another short break, but when we come back, we'll continue talking about the Palestine question here on Corporate Report Radio. Great friends, welcome back to the program. Tonight on Corbett Report Radio, we're talking about the Palestine question, what is happening in Palestine, and what is uh, likely to come in the coming weeks and months as things continue to swirl around. Of course, not only in the wake of the recent bombing of the Gaza Strip and what was happening there, but lots of other political wrangling and and things happening right at this particular juncture, and all seems to be coming to a head at the same time. So let's take our next cue from the China Daily. Uh, They have a post up from today about Palestine's UN bid, an historic moment, according to the envoy. And it says, Riyad Mansour, the permanent observer of Palestine to the United Nations, said on Tuesday that Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas will submit the Palestinian bid for a non-member state status to the UN General Assembly on Thursday as planned, which will be a historic moment for both the Palestinians and the world body. And no matter what way you slice it, that's a pretty sad statement, because I think we can all agree that uh, the idea that getting non-member state status in the UN General Assembly is some historic moment is uh, pretty low on the totem pole. And when it comes to uh, political leverage and power, what does that actually afford Palestine? Should they even be granted this, which is quite questionable? Um, well, basically not much at all. It would at least theoretically allow them to bring Israel before the International Criminal Court for war crimes and things of that nature. Although I think we can all imagine how far that would go in the International Criminal Court where they're happy to convict uh, people like, uh, well, they're happy to at least prosecute people like Gaddafi for uh, the alleged Viagra-fueled rape of his troops his troops on the uh, civilians of Libya and other just ridiculous garbage made up out of nowhere. But the idea of bringing, for example, Bush and Cheney before the International Criminal Court to answer for the war crimes uh, conviction that, was, uh, that occurred in Kuala Lumpur, that, well, I don't think that's going to be on the legislative agenda or the, uh, the ju- judicial agenda, I should say, anytime soon. Nor will, I think, the International Criminal Court really take the Israelis uh, before, uh, before them as potential war criminals. But there are lots of different ways that, uh, that uh, Palestine could, the Palestinians could argue that Israel uh, has committed war crimes. And here's a particularly interesting one that's just surfaced in recent days regarding Yasser Arafat, who has been dead and in the grave for eight years now. And suddenly there's a lot of renewed interest in the story of how he died. And this goes back to an Al Jazeera report from earlier this summer. And basically, Al Jazeera got some of the belongings of Yasser Arafat and had them tested and found traces of polonium, which uh, was the the very drug, the very poison, the very radiation-inducing element that 
that did, did in uh, Alexander Litvinenko, who, of course, was a fierce critic of the Kremlin. He was silenced by this polonium back in 2006. Well, there's new indications that perhaps Arafat was given the same treatment. So, believe it or not, they have just exhumed his body and taken some samples, and some French, Swiss, and Russian observers are going to take those samples and uh, and test them to see if they can detect any poisons and or polonium. So it's going to be a very interesting thing. And I have a clip from my appearance on RT just last night for me here in Japan talking about this very phenomenon. So let's go to the clip. To discuss the sensitive procedure and potential political ramifications, I'm now joined live by journalist James Corbett. Mr. Corbett, controversy over Arafat's death has continued for eight years. Why is it now that his body has been exhumed and an investigation is being held? Well, it's being exhumed because of this uh, new study, uh, as you say, from Al Jazeera that that shows that polonium may have been a likely candidate in his poisoning. And this is the first time that specific element has been identified as a potential poisoning agent in this case. And at the time in 2004, it would have been somewhat unusual to to have tested for polonium. But of course, we saw just two years later, Alexander Litvinenko, a uh, a fierce critic of the Kremlin, being poisoned with that exact substance. And of course, at the time, there was a lot of questions about whether the the ex-KGB had been involved in that or what have you. But uh, Litvinenko, of course, was poisoned with polonium, and now we're testing that for uh, Arafat. But it's uh, questionable what uh, political changes will really result from this, since the vast majority of Palestinians have believed since uh, Arafat's death that he was assassinated by Israel. How impartial will this investigation be? Well, the uh, the actual exhumation was c- uh, conducted by a Palestinian doctor. That was the only doctor that was allowed to actually touch the body. There were Swiss, uh, French, and uh, I believe Russian witnesses there as well, though, to, to oversee the process. But the only person actually touching and collecting the samples was a Palestinian doctor, and all three of the witnesses, the Swiss, the French, and the Russians, are going to be able to c- uh, get some of those samples so that they can test them in their own labs. So it is going to be a fairly independent process, um, but it is questionable uh, to what extent they'll be able to come up with some definitive answer about how this agent was actually delivered to Arafat and uh, in what circumstances. Now, the Al Jazeera media network is at the heart of the investigation. Why is it getting so involved? That is a good question. Uh, there are pr- multiple different possible answers to that. Of course, they are, there are the Qatari connections with uh, the Al Jazeera network, and uh, we do know that Qatar has been interested in in what's happening in Palestine uh, lately. Of course, with the Emir of Qatar coming to uh, to Palestine just uh, shortly before the recent Israeli aggression, um, offering money and and arms, etc. So th- there's definitely seems to be some some type of meddling going on in the region. But whether or not that's related to this particular investigation is unclear. Of course, Al Jazeera ended up being the network getting the actual uh, uh, the 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 uh, personal belongings of Arafat. Which, from which they were able to conduct the tests. So, so the fact that they were able to get their hands on that, those personal belongings, I think, were the, the decisive factor in this. I guess everybody's now going to be asking, what kind of fallouts do you predict if it's confirmed that the, the lay Palestinian leader was indeed poisoned? 
Yes, that is a, that is the question, and I think that really there's there's no conceivable way that this will have any real political fallout because uh, once again the vast majority of Palestinians have always assumed that Israel assassinated Arafat. If this goes on to confirm that, it kind of throws in the face of the Palestinians their their helplessness in a situation like this. And this was underscored actually just earlier this month when uh, Israel came out and for the first time military censors allowed information about the killing of uh, Fatah's co-founder, not just uh, Yasser Arafat, but also Khalil al-Wazir, was a co-founder of Fatah. He was assassinated by Israel in 1988, and for uh, 25 years, basically, there's been this secrecy over the killing, and finally, just the, earlier this month, Israel has, uh, has cleared that, and uh, the actual interviews with the commandos who ca carried out that assassination have been published. So now it's openly on the record admitted that uh, the co-founder of Fatah was killed by the Israelis, but again, nothing has resulted politically. And it's unclear whether or not Palestine will have any ability to bring any sort of proceedings against Israel um, uh, if it is found that, uh, that Arafat was poisoned. And even if it is found, it's not clear that it's going to be able to be pinned on any particular uh, person in the Israeli government. So who would the charges be brought against? It, it's uh, a question of really what type of political leverage the Palestinians have in this case. And the answer, unfortunately, as usual, is almost none. James Cobbett, we're going to have to leave it right there. Thank you very much for your time. Editor of The Cobbett Report joining us here on RT. All right, that was my most recent appearance on RT uh, just last night here in Japan. So, of course, that's up on my YouTube channel separately as well, uh, along with all of my other RT appearances. And uh, just as a side note for people who think that RT is uh, totally, utterly controlled by the Russian government, I mean, it's interesting that they at least uh, don't censor me when I'm talking about uh, Litvinenko being uh, poisoned by polonium. I, in fact, probably don't think he was actually done in by the uh, the FSB or the KGB or what have you, but... Uh, uh, but that's what all the signs point to, and that's at least what I, I, I pointed out there, and, uh, and no censorship. Surprise, surprise. So, But anyways, uh, there is a couple of things to follow up from that report. First of all, the little uh, factoid about Khalil al-Wazir, the co-founder of Fatah, being admitted to have been assassinated by Israeli agents now after almost 25 years of secrecy. That came out earlier this month, as I said, in an AP report. You can find it at the HimalayanTimes.com. I'll put in the link in the show notes. Israel acknowledges killing Fatah founder, so it's not out of the realm of possibility to suggest that they assassinated Arafat as well. And uh, and I saw some comments on that story online from some, I think, misinformed people who are talking about polonium being a naturally occurring substance, etc. Of course it is, but if you go and watch that entire Al Jazeera report they did of those initial tests they took of his personal belongings, you'll see that they tested for the two different types of polonium there are. There's the, the naturally occurring one, and then there's the kind that can only be created in a reactor, and uh, it was definitely the artificial kind that would have had to have been given to him in some sort of, um, well, doses that in order to try to kill him. And uh, and also there's the rumors that always float around about uh, AIDS and, uh, and, you know, Arafat's pedophilia, etc. Well, again, that, uh, that Al Jazeera report has several doctors with the actual tests uh, conclusively stating it was not AIDS. He did not have AIDS. He did not die of AIDS. So I, I would, once again, I, I mean, we, we have to take the Al Jazeera report with a grain of salt at this point, but at the very least, they did do a bit of their homework and they aren't just making this up. Another important factor that came up there is the cutter angle, and we'll get into that a little bit more later, but coming up after this break, we're going to be listening to a clip of 
uh, my most recent eye-opener report, which again just went up about 12 hours ago, so uh, maybe you haven't seen it yet. It is a report of, from Kuala Lumpur about the launching of the Gaza Emergency Fund. This is a fund that's been created by the Perdana Global Peace Foundation, and it is attempting to get emergency aid and uh, medical supplies, etc., to the people of Gaza in the wake of the recent Israeli bombing. So if uh, if you're interested in that and how you can get involved with that, uh, there is some information in that report. That's also, of course, up at BoilingFrogsPost.com. So we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to listen to that report. And later on, we're going to be getting into the Qatar angle, what Qatar is doing in Palestine, why the Emir of Qatar is coming in and supporting Hamas, etc., and what that's all about. And we're also going to be listening to some testimony of an actual Palestinian about his uh, suffering and torture at the hands of the Israelis. So a lot of information in tonight's episode. I hope you will stay tuned right there. We'll be back with more right after this here on Corbett Report Radio. Welcome. This is James Corbett with a special edition of the Boiling Frogs Post eye-opener report live on location in Malaysia at the Kuala Lumpur War Crimes Commission hearing on Palestine, where earlier today, former Malaysian Prime Minister Dr. Tun Mahathir Mohamed started the Gaza Emergency Fund to send much-needed medical supplies and emergency aid to the people of Gaza. The program, established by the Perdana Global Peace Foundation, was created in response to Israeli aggression in Gaza earlier this month that resulted in over 160 Palestinian deaths, including those of women and children. The fund was launched after an address by former Malaysian Prime Minister and President of the Pradana Global Peace Foundation, Dr. Mahathir Mohamed. The program's first donation, contributed by the PGPF, was a contribution of 100,000 Malaysian ringgits to Medical Aid for Palestine, a London-based NGO seeking to provide health and medical care to the people of Palestine, despite a strictly enforced Israeli blockade of supplies to the region. According to PGPF President Dr. Mahathir, the fund has to work with NGOs that have an existing infrastructure for delivering aid to Palestine, because otherwise it is impossible for the donations to reach their intended recipients. We should, uh... Well, we would like to collect as much money as possible to finance aid uh, to, for Gaza, but we don't have a proper network to distribute the aid. Although in the past we have sent uh, ships and we have sent uh, people to bring uh, aid material, book, I mean medicine and uh, food, etc., to Gaza, but there are other organizations with similar aim we would be willing to help them with some of the funds. The establishment of the fund and the recent aggression in Palestine comes coincidentally just as the city played host to the Kuala Lumpur Foundation to Criminalize Wars Commission hearings on Palestine, investigating Israeli war crimes in the occupied Palestinian territory. The hearings, lasting two days, brought Palestinians to Malaysia to testify of their own suffering at the hands of occupying Israeli forces, including often uncomfortable testimony of torture, abuse, and murder. Yes, sir. And you're saying here that 21 members of your family were killed in one day, 5th January 2009, in Gaza City. The Gaza Emergency Fund is not the PGPF's first foray into delivering aid to Gaza. 
In 2011, it sponsored the Spirit of Rachel Corey, a Malaysian ship attempting to breach the Israeli naval blockade of Gaza and deliver PVC piping to the Palestinians to assist in restoring the region's devastated sewage systems. Gaza is prevented from getting any form of aid because of this Israeli illegal blockade. We ourselves have experienced this blockage. When we send ships to bring aid material to Gaza, the ships were stopped in international waters. Now, international waters is not for people to carry out piracy or military action. But Israel breaks laws all the time. This is the most lawless country ever seen in the history of this world. Dr. Samsudin Hitam of the PGPF describes his own experiences aboard the ship. And uh, uh, and then we targeted that we should reach Gaza water in the morning of uh, uh, what do you call 16th of May. That's where the the, the story starts, meaning in the sense that uh, when they reached there, about a few hundred uh, meters from the shore, they were, uh, what do you call, uh, intercepted by the Israeli army. So they had been forced to go to uh, uh, Al-Arish. Uh, the, uh, the, the Egyptian Navy took over in terms of, uh, uh, what do you call, escorting us to uh, Port Al-Arish. PGPF Chairman Norian Mai describes his own experiences traveling in Gaza. In 2010, I had the opportunity to be inside Gaza for five days. And I traveled uh, everywhere in Gaza. Of course, it is a small, considered a very small area, and I had the opportunity to to meet with the few ministers and also the Prime Minister uh, of Gaza, uh, Ismail Hanayat, and uh, to see myself the suffering and also the how the society I and mean, how the people in Gaza uh, live and conduct their life on daily basis. Uh, to me, it looks like a big prison. They have no opportunity whatsoever to leave the uh, to leave their their settlement without the permission of the Israel Authority. Well, I think we should care for people who are in distress because we never know when we would be in a similar situation, either uh, naturally through some um, catastrophe, natural catastrophe, or it may be because uh, some big powers might uh, attack us and uh, we'll be distressed. And at that stage, we need help from others. So before we ever get into that situation, we should uh, think about other people so that when we are in that situation, maybe people will think about us. 
Contributions to the emergency fund are currently being accepted via the PGPF's Maybank account. Details are available from their website. James Corbett, BoilingFrogsPost.com, Kuala Lumpur. All right, we're back. Welcome back, everyone. Once again, this is Corbett Report Radio. What you've just been listening to there was my most recent eye-opener report for BoilingFrogsPost.com. It's entitled The Gaza Emergency Fund, quite simply, and it's available up on YouTube separately as well. So you can go there to find out more. There's also a link there to the actual Perdana uh, Global Peace Foundation website where you can find out more about the fund and if you're interested in donating, how you can go about doing that. But uh, once again tonight, we are talking about Palestine, what is happening there, the political drama that's swirling around in many different respects with the uh, exhumation of Yasser Arafat's body and Palestinian UN membership and all sorts of other issues that are coming to a head right at the moment. But what would a uh, talk about Palestine be without actually hearing from a Palestinian? And this comes to mind because uh, people might have seen on my Twitter account while I was there in Kuala Lumpur, I tweeted out a New York Times article that was uh, put out just at the start of the Israeli aggression there that I thought was particularly egregious and uh, did not deserve the mantle of the word journalism in any by any stretch of the imagination, which went into great length talking in great detail about how Palestinians got their Iranian rockets and how this uh, person that they were targeting was, was getting all of his uh, contacts and how he was doing all of this. And the entire article... Every single paragraph sourced back to his to un, uh, anonymous Israeli officials. Not one single Palestinian was quoted anywhere in that article on any factor. And so uh, I think basic precepts of journalism completely obliterated there. So in the interest of balance, let's hear from an actual Palestinian. Once again, as I'm sure you all know by now, I was in Kuala Lumpur last week, and I was attending, among other things, the uh, war, Kuala Lumpur War Crime Foundation's uh, commission hearing on Palestine, where they were taking witness testimony from various Palestinians about the abuses that they have suffered under the Israeli regime and the the authority there in the uh, occupied Palestinian territories. And uh, I had the chance, I had the honor to interview a few of these witnesses, um, some very, very harrowing stories. And in fact, I'm going to be putting together a video report specifically about one of those stories a young boy who was uh, 12 years old back in 2008, uh, during 2009, during Cast Lead, when he witnessed over 30 members of his family killed right in front of him in a uh, in a massacre that took place uh, there in, in Gaza. And it was just an, an absolutely harrowing story. So this uh, now 15-year-old boy was there testifying in Kuala Lumpur. Where I'm going to have an entire uh, video report about that coming out in the next, uh, well, several days sometime. So I hope you'll stay tuned for that. But uh, right now I've got a clip from an interview that I conducted with another one of the witnesses, uh, Jawad Musle, Jawad Isa Musle, who was there and was talking about his own experiences in a prison in the West Bank and uh, what happened there and and the types of atrocious things that he suffered. This is really only a short uh, taste of that uh, that testimony because we had limited time when we were recording the interview. But at the very least, uh, we have a little bit of it here for you to listen to. And uh, this is an interview that I co-conducted with Niall Bowie of niallbowie.blogspot.com. I'm sure some of you remember him from his previous appearance here on the broadcast. But let's listen to this interview as we interview Jawad Issa Musle about his experiences in the West Bank. 
Uh, my name is Jawad Muslih. Uh, I live in uh, a place called Beit Sahur in the West Bank, Palestine. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about your experience in, in the West Bank? Uh, which experience in particular? <laughs> okay, well, as I recall from your testimony, uh, uh, you were participating in peaceful demonstration uh, and you were detained. Yes. Well, uh, I was arrested by the Israelis many times, uh, around, I mean, uh, it was eight times that I was arrested for different uh, periods. Uh, first time was in 1985, when I was still uh, 15 years old, and uh, I was sentenced for uh, 20 months. Uh, the, the main uh, charge uh, at that time was that I was a member in one of the um, Palestinian political uh, parties. Uh, now, here in Kuala Lumpur, uh, what do you think the um, what do you think the outcome of uh, the, the conference here, hosted by the Verdana Global Peace Foundation, will be? What do you hope it will be? Uh, well, first of all, I think it's uh, a good opportunity for uh, raising awareness about the Palestinian cause. Um, and uh, second, I hope uh, that uh, some war criminals will be brought to justice uh, as an outcome of this uh, event here. Uh, and it's, I think it's an important step in, in the way to, in, in our struggle towards uh, peace and justice in, in Palestine. Can you talk a little bit about your experiences while you were detained in jail? What had happened to you and a little bit of the treatment that you experienced? Mm. Um, I, uh, during the, the first intifada, uh, I used to, to participate in some of the activities, uh, particularly some uh, peaceful demonstrations uh, in our town. Uh, and as a result of that, I was arrested uh, a few times. Um, uh, usually they arrest people from, from their homes. So I was arrested from, from my house uh, after midnight. Uh, and um, uh, when they uh, arrested me, they, of course, used to search my, uh, my house, my room, my belongings. Um, and uh, usually they used to um, to uh, cuff my hands behind my back and to close my, to cover my eyes. Uh, and uh, you, I mean, I was sent to interrogation centers in uh, in Israeli jails. Um, uh, and in other times, I was I was once arrested uh, in the demonstration itself. Uh, the, an Israeli uh, jeep attacked the demonstration and chased uh, the, the participants, and I was one of those who were arrested uh, in that demonstration. Uh, when I was caught there, I, I mean, the, the soldiers uh, uh, started beating me all over my body. Uh, and uh, I fell in coma, and after I woke up, I, I found myself in, in prison. Uh, but if you want me to talk about the interrogation uh, period, uh, usually during interrogation, uh, uh, all kinds of torture uh, are used against the Palestinian prisoners. 
to uh, get confessions from prisoners by, by force and by torture. Uh, physical torture is uh, widely used by the uh, Israeli investigators by, you know, um, beating prisoners uh, all over their bodies. And uh, they focus, I guess, they focus more on, on psychological uh, torture, uh, like uh, expanding the time of uh, interrogation for uh, many days and many weeks, uh, and uh, uh, leaving the prisoners uh, prisoner in isolation uh, with no contact with anyone. Uh, it's not allowed to contact lawyers or the family or anyone during the, the interrogation uh, period. Uh, no phone calls, nothing is allowed. Uh, and it's, uh, it's usually a hard time for the prisoners because, uh, I mean, uh, <coughs> they are not allowed uh, to, to eat or to drink or to go to the bathroom, uh, not allowed to, to have uh, bath. Uh, and uh, they are usually, most of the times, they are uh, covered with, uh, their heads are covered with uh, uh, sacks that are, that smell too bad, and they are uh, cuffed from, from behind and uh, tied to a wall or to a chair. Uh, this, of course, is, is very painful. Uh, to stay sitting for hours and days sometimes. Uh, it, it's painful to all parts of the body, but basically the, the, the rests, the, because the, 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 the cuffs, the, what do you call them? The handcuffs. Handcuffs, yeah. They, they are so tight on the hands, and of course your back is always bending, uh, and so it's uh, so hard, and... Uh, and all the muscles and bones, you know, when you 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 sit in the same place, uh, you cannot move for long hours. And as a result of that, many many prisoners uh, had many health troubles after they are released because of this inter interrogation, you know, period. Um, uh, what else I can say about it? Uh, I mean, uh, they also um, blackmail the prisoners uh, when when prisoners ask to go to the bathroom or ask for a cigarette or something like that. They uh, are asked by the interrogators to to uh, make confessions first in in return to to having uh, to to have a meal or to drink or whatever. Um, uh, something else I would like to, to mention, which uh, I personally experienced, is uh, 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 they sometimes put the prisoners in uh, small rooms, less than one meter by one meter. And uh, this room is uh, completely dark, no windows, nothing, no light at all in this room. Uh, and um, you, uh, the the floor is uh, is, is wet. There is water then on, on the floor of this room, so you cannot sit down. Uh, you have to uh, to stand up all the time, and you cannot see anything. It's completely dark, um, and they just send. I mean, uh, put you in this kind of room for hours. 
so it's it's a horrible experience to uh, to explain. I mean, it, if, it's uh, you you can see nothing and uh, you can do nothing. Uh, you cannot sit. You have to stay standing. Uh, so this is this. I mean, uh, psychologically, you. Uh, um, I mean, prisoners start to to um, collapse maybe from this uh, such ex- experience, uh, and it's it's like a coffin, you know. It's uh, uh, one, only less than one meter by one meter, as I said, and uh, and uh, after a few hours, also there is no enough oxygen in the room. Uh, so this is also a very uh, common uh, way that they use in their interrogation centers. Uh, okay, so we only have time for one more quick, quick question. But I, yes. I want to know, um, this message is going to be seen by people all around the world, many people who only see the Israeli side of this conflict and the Israeli side of the news. If you had a message to those people about what's important for them to understand about Palestine and the Palestinian people, what would you like to say to them? Uh, I would say that uh, people uh, must know that Palestine uh, lives under the Israeli occupation. The occupation is illegal according to the uh, international law. And there are many uh, resolutions which uh, state that uh, Israel should end its occupation to the to the Palestinian uh, occupied territories. And uh, as a result of this occupation, the Palestinian people uh, uh, is suffering on daily basis. Uh, We suffer. from the Israeli procedures against the Palestinian people on checkpoints, uh, we suffer from the uh, the different the, the arrests of people, uh, suffer from the confiscation of lands, suffer from the presence of the Israeli uh, settlers uh, who live in Israeli colonies on uh, Palestinian lands, uh, and uh, um, the Palestinian uh, struggle for peace and freedom. Um, uh, is uh, is not uh, uh, is not t- uh, terrorism. It is uh, it is a struggle for peace. We are struggling to get our freedom uh, and justice, like all the peoples of the, the world. And it's the, um, uh, the the Israeli policies against the Palestinian people. This is terrorism. And uh, this is uh, what should be stopped immediately. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you so much for your time. Thank You're you. welcome. Okay. All right, once again, that's just a taste of some of the information that I'm working on and working with behind the scenes here with all of this footage and interviews, etc., that I managed to conduct last week in Kuala Lumpur. So again, that will be spilling out from the website in various uh, reports, etc., over the next week or two. And as I say, I hope you'll stay tuned for the report on the young boy, the 15-year-old boy who I managed to interview. And uh, there's just a, a very, very harrowing story to be told there. But let's let's move on. Again, there's a lot swirling around right now with Palestine and uh, various things going on. Another important part of what's going on is the, some of the people that are uh, that are putting their foot in the door that are trying to to apparently get the some, some something going here in Palestine and trying to uh, leverage themselves and their power over what's happening and I'm th- talking specifically about Qatar and this has been 
drawn out even in mainstream reports. We even have this uh, from the AP carried on Yahoo News. Uh, Two powers, Qatar and Iran, tried to sway Hamas, talking about the courtship of Hamas by both Iran and Qatar, and basically the implication that Qatar is trying to uh, to raise its leverage, uh, political power, capital in the region, and uh, and is trying to draw Hamas away from Iran. Uh, this is also dra- uh, drawn out in an editorial on geopoliticalmonitor.com. Qatar looks to Gaza as the map continues to shift, and it talks about how uh, the emir of Qatar has recently visited uh, Palestine, in fact, just shortly before the, the hostilities began there between Israel and, and the Gaza Strip. And uh, and it talks a little bit about this in the context of what's been going on and what this might mean. So just reading a, a small part of that, it says the emir's visit is part of a wider Qatari policy to raise the country's international profile by way of its sizable fiscal resources. Doha has indeed opened its wallet, vowing $250 million earlier this year, a sum that was increased to $400 million upon the emir's arrival in Gaza. Though such a sum of money will be seen as important by the government in Gaza, it is markedly less so for Doha. So this goes on to talk about the way that uh, basically the Qatar government and the emir is trying to raise its profile and, and spend some of its political capital and some of its actual capital in the region, trying to raise its status and become more of a player in the region. But that relates back to a number of different things. And of course, it must be remembered that Qatar is very much in the back pocket of the U.S., so the fact that the emir is going to uh, Palestine to give them mi- hundreds of millions of dollars shortly before this latest round of hostilities is very interesting and something that was actually talked about by Michelle Chosodovsky of Global Research. So when we come back, we'll wrap things up by taking a look at a very important article from globalresearch.ca. All right, here we are in the final minutes of tonight's episode, and I want to continue on talking about the Palestine question, and one of the big questions that I think was hanging over the recent aggression in the Gaza Strip is why? Why now? Why did this all transpire, especially when it wasn't really on the political agenda of anyone? I don't think anyone was really expecting this before it happened. We were being told to concentrate on Syria and the new Syrian National Council, or its equivalent that they're trying to bring in, and what's happening with Assad, etc., etc. Will will Israel strike out at Iran? We were looking at a lot of different things, but I don't think another attack on Gaza was really on the the political agenda for for many people. So why did it happen? Well, I think it has to be seen in the context of the upcoming Israeli elections and the reappointment, I'm sure, of Bibi Netanyahu, and who's trying to secure his domestic base. But beyond that, there are some other interesting connections that have been raised uh, to not only Israel, but of course uh, to to the United States and to Qatar. And these connections were raised in an article with an analysis that I don't think I've seen from anyone else. This was written by Michel Chosodovsky while we were there in Kuala Lumpur. On the 20th of November, he had an article out on globalresearch.ca entitled The U.S.-Israeli Attack on Gaza. And it has some interesting information that I don't think a lot of people are talking about. So let's read a little bit of that here in the final minutes. It says, U.S.-Israeli War Games. What is significant in assessing U.S. involvement in Operation Pillar of Cloud is the fact that in the months prior to the attacks, the U.S. and Israel were involved in the conduct of the largest joint war games in Israeli history. The objective of the war games was to test Israel's missile air defense system against attacks from far and near, namely from Iran, Hezbollah, and Hamas. 
U.S. Defense Secretary Leon and uh, Panetta and Israel's Minister of Defense Ehud Barak had established a process of close consultation. Panetta was in Israel in early August. He returned to Tel Aviv two months later on October 3rd, two weeks before the launching of the U.S.-Israeli austere Challenge 12 military exercises. On October 18th, the U.S. and Israel launched within Israel the first phase of the joint war games. The military exercises were conducted over four weeks, overlapping with the U.S. elections and culminating with the commencement of the Gaza bombings. The joint U.S.-Israeli war games, in a sense, went live on November 14th with the launching of Operation Pillar of Cloud. Now, again, there's a lot more detail to this analysis, and I think it's an extremely interesting part of the piece of the puzzle that I don't see anyone else talking about. So I hope people will take a look at that article. Of course, I'll post it in the show notes of tonight's episode at CorbettReport.com. And this also goes back to the insidious role of Qatar, which he goes on to mention at the end of this article, talking about uh, the Emir of Qatar's uh, timely arrival on the scene shortly before this whole raid takes place and what particular uh, part the uh, the Emir of Qatar may have, may have had in all this. Again, a fascinating analysis. We don't have time to get into it in great detail here, but I hope you will go and check out that article. And, of course, I hope you'll continue to check out CorbettReport.com as uh, videos continue to come out on uh, almost an hourly basis there. I've put up several videos now, including four of the presentations from the Kuala Lumpur 9-11 conference. Several more will be coming out, as well as other videos and interviews and reports, etc., etc. It's a lot to keep up with, I know, but that's what happens when I go away for a week. So on that note, we'll leave things there for tonight, and I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. I will be back with you 23 hours from now so until then thank you all for listening and take care